You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Portugal's Prime Minister resigns after a knock on the door from the police. The G7's foreign ministers meet to figure out if there is anything they can do about the Middle East, and Kenya gets a day off to do some gardening. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lizette Raymer and Yossi Meckelberg will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from our correspondent at the World Travel Market, currently underway in London. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton, and also by Lizette Raymer, News Hub's Europe correspondent. Hello to you both. Hello. Uh, we will have more from you both very shortly, but we will start in Portugal, where in the last few hours, long-serving Prime Minister Antonio Costa has announced his resignation, implicitly acknowledging the difficulty of styling out a raid on one's official residence and detention of one's chief of staff by police investigating the fiddling of the financing of a lithium extraction endeavour. I'm joined now in an attempt to explain any or all of that by Monocle's senior foreign correspondent and producer of this show, Carlotta Ribello, who has the considerable advantage of being Portuguese. Um, Carlotta, is this a complete surprise? This seems a thoroughly baffling turn of events in a country not really known for serving up this sort of drama. I know. We usually pride ourselves of being different from the other Southern European neighbours, but I guess uh, this occasion proved that uh, we're just all the same. But uh, it is and it isn't a surprise. Um, it is a surprise that Antonio Costa got to this position that he was forced to resign, but his uh, party and his administration has been involved in a series of minor scandals over the past few years. So for many, this was in the making, has been in the making for the past few months. It was almost just a matter of what would be the thing that would eventually force his hand. Now, when he addressed the nation earlier today, he made a a point of really making it clear that this was as surprising to the public as it was to him when he uh, got uh, the official information that his office was being raided earlier this morning and along with two ministries, um, that his chief of staff had been arrested and that a bunch of other officials were officially charged as part of this investigation. He continues to say that um, he hasn't done anything illegal, that his conscience is clear. Uh, but as prime minister, that, you know, the dignity that the position carries uh, wouldn't be correct to stay in the office while there's an investigation that involves him. It is important to say that he hasn't been charged or accused of anything. He is just named as one of the people being uh, part of this investigation by the Supreme Court. Well, we will doubtless uh, have more on this story as more of it comes to light, specifically what these charges might actually be should they ever be pressed. But what happens politically now in Portugal? Because he was, of course, re-elected at the beginning of last year quite handily. In fact, his Socialist Party do still have a reasonable sort of majority in Parliament, thin but workable. Um, Can they just carry on with someone else in charge? 
So the office of the presidency uh, in Portugal has summoned the political leaders, the party leaders and the state councillors to kind of decide what are the next ste steps. The Council of State is this uh, kind of advisory board to body to the president. They're meeting on Thursday and party leaders are meeting tomorrow. And either the socialists will nominate a caretaker prime minister, although Antonio Costa has said he was willing to remain in office until a successful successor can be named, uh, while clarifying he is not running or seeking re-election when the time comes, or the president dissolves the parliament and snap elections will be called, which seems like the most uh, likely scenario. Uh, the president, Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa, has said in the past that if this government wasn't able to carry uh, its administration to full term, that he would call for snap elections elections. Now, there is a big question here, as you mentioned, Andrew, um, this is a government that has a majority, slim, mm -hmm. but it does have a majority. Costa had been in power since 2015, being re-elected in 2019 and 2022. So if it now there is a real uh, power and a real momentum behind the public prosecutor's office to actually come up with a charge and actually come up with what's here at stake, because we don't really know the de many details of how the prime minister may or may not be involved in this investigation, because otherwise it is a step that has brought down a government that was elected by a lot of people, that has a majority in parliament and would throw everything up in the open. So now there is a lot of responsibility that lies with the public prosecutor's office to actually come out and explain what that means um, in practice. And Portugal's media has only had a few hours to get its collective head around this story. What have you made of the tone of the coverage so far? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that this is major front page stuff. This would be in any country. But What kind of tone are they taking aside from that? There is a mix. Uh, there is, a, of course, concern about what's about to happen to the country. You know, as uh, the rest of Europe, Portugal is grappling with uh, the cost of living uh, crisis. There has been recent crisis in the education, health and housing sectors, uh, all of which had, uh, after a series of protests and demands and meetings with government, uh, additional funds had been approved. And now Costa's resignation puts the release of those funds on hold because you want have a government to actually deliver on that budget and to release these additional funding. So there's a lot of things that are now on hold that would be temporary fixes to an ongoing crisis and that throws everything up in the open. And there's another detail here. We have seen for the past few years the far right slowly rising in Portugal. This is a particularly tricky momentum uh, for opposition parties. The PSD, the Social Democrats, who are the main opposition to the current government, are not in an organized way at the moment that they could become the next party that would govern on their own. Uh, so it really opens up the question about potential alliances with the far right, the potential rise of the far right, and what that would mean if there were snap elections. So it is quite a, a dangerous political uh, time uh, that has just emerged in Portugal. And just to add one final thing, this hasn't just impacted domestic politics. Antonio Costa was uh, tipped to be the successor to Charles Michel as the president of the European Council. Uh, and of course, this resignation now completely removes him from that race. So now, even uh, within European circles, there's a question about who will succeed Charles Michel, because uh, Costa was widely liked by both sides of the political spectrum. So this hasn't just impacted tiny Portugal, Andrew. <laughs> well, we will, of course, be keeping up with this story across all our shows as it develops in coming days. But for the moment, Carlotta Rebello, thank you for joining us. 
This is the Monocle Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Yossi Meckelberg and Lazette Raymer. And now to the Middle East. It is one month today since Hamas broke out of the Gaza Strip and conducted a rampage across Israel that killed more than 1,400 people. In the one month since, according to the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, at least 10,000 Palestinians, around 4,000 of them children, have been killed by Israel's retaliatory bombardments. As Israeli ground forces step up operations inside Gaza, some idea of Israel's endgame is emerging. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will eventually assume what he called, quote, overall security responsibility, unquote, for Gaza. Um, Yossi, we will come back to what Benjamin Netanyahu might mean by that. But one month on, there's obviously been a lot of reflection uh, in Israeli media, which, of course, will not have stopped covering the story in that one month. But what have you made of today's coverage in particular? Do you get the idea that Israel has yet fully apprehended what happened on October 7th? It will take much longer really to absorb, to digest, to reflect of what happened. Because on one hand, all the security paradigm of Israel collapsed within a few hours. The brutality of Hamas, the idea that people are capable of doing what, what they did, it's again, it's, I just met a friend of mine and said, you know, many of us that gradually start getting to understand must find some political solution. We can't get on like this and we can't let the right in Israel, the ultra right mm. to dictate what's happening. And it in one sweep, we moved back where we were before that. And that's really worries me. And so it, it, it will take time. You know, they still identify bodies. They still try to find out how many people actually are still hostages, if the the numbers are going up and what happened to these hostages. And you see in one month when you see the level of killing, you know, on both sides now, and how many civilians are actually caught in, in, in this. Wherever the rights are wrong, civilians shouldn't be caught in this level of killing. And and obviously it's reverberates across the Middle East. And do we know what's what's happening next? We heard uh, Hassan Nasrallah's uh, speech on, on Friday that mm-hmm. managed it in an, an hour and a half to say very little, but at <laughs> the same time, are they going to jump? Because the pressure there, the longer the war, the more danger of destabilizing. And today was a very somber day in Israel. Actually, it's interesting that the kind of the memorial events were not organized by the government, not by the, by the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, by civil society. So if something is happening within the Israeli society, the question which direction it takes. Um, Lizette, you were in Israel very shortly after October 7th. You, you undertook one of those, I guess, curious journalistic pivots, which is attendant upon your job of attempting to cover the entire Northern Hemisphere uh, for the people of New Zealand. You went straight from the Rugby World Cup uh, to Israel. What did you make of what you found when you got there? Yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly, obviously, tragic environment to walk into. I think when we first arrived, it was very quickly after that initial attack, and there was a lot of shock on the streets. There was a lot of uh, hurt and disbelief, a lot of people trying to process what they were learning. Then in the days after we arrived, obviously, all of the information came flooding in as the different uh, locations were were identified and and the police went in and did their investigations. I think I attended a lot of the burials, obviously heart-wrenching and just 
utter disbelief at what had happened. And I think at that point we were meeting with a lot of the hostages' families and, again, they were appealing for uh, the the hostages to be the main priority mm. and I think still that is perhaps something that is concerning people is that getting the hostages out of Gaza isn't the main priority for the Israeli government at the moment. But I think at the time when I was there, there was such an overwhelming sense of sympathy for the Israeli people and for what Hamas had done in terms of inflicting all that pain on their families out of nowhere, this huge shock attack and now I feel like gradually, especially in the in the weeks that I've been out of Israel, I've noticed that sense changing as the bombardments on Gaza have intensified. The world started to hear from those journalists who are inside the enclave and hear those harrowing stories. Now I think that is we're seeing quite a different feeling to what I had experienced when I was in Israel in those first couple of weeks. Yossi, what do you think? Do you think Israel may have lost control of the global narrative around this? I think, as Lizette says quite rightly, there was... Uh, at the time of the attack on October 7th and in the days immediately afterwards, I think enormous sympathy uh, around the world for Israel and absolute horror uh, at what Hamas had done. But since Israel commenced its full-scale bombardment of Gaza, that has become the story. Yeah, I completely agree with Lizette. It's Well, obviously, the empathy, the sympathy on 7th of October towards Israel, it's, it was genuine. Mm. And you see a leader after leader coming to Israel and expressing, we stand with Israel, we support Israel, we'll defend Israel. The United States sends the power of its navy, the biggest aircraft carrier in, in the world, ended in the eastern Mediterranean. This was genuine. You see, actually, Biden's speech, the first speech that he gave, you see that he was really moved by what happened there. And as someone that, you know, for 50 years visiting Israel. But I think the mistake is to think to give Israel a, a blank check to do whatever they want in, in, in Gaza. And especially when, when emotions were running so high, and it's not only about destroying Hamas, whatever it means, because Hamas is political, it's military, mm. it's an idea more than anything else, it's ideology is that what is the aim of the... Destroying Hamas means as it can be something, a buzzword to go and, and, and say in the media, but how do you going to achieve it when you are entering into a small enclave with 2.3 million people? Many of them what's known as the Gaza Metro, which is the kind of the, the, the tunnels there. Mm. And if the idea that you basically erase completely Gaza and in the process also destroy Hamas, for how long you expect that the international community support. And we see also from our point of view how it's imported now into different societies. And I think this is the mistake. Now, one of the things that we can't escape, it's very difficult to know when you have a prime minister that faces corruption trial, and you have a prime minister that formed the most right-wing government just to save his own skin. What of his calculation are about the war and dealing with the... the the, the atrocity of Hamas and what is about prolonging as much as possible is stay in power because of his trial. Bear in mind, this is the prime minister that prided himself be the defender of Israel, Mr. Security, and there was no defending and there was no security on 7th of October. Which is why his polling is now plummeting, right? Mm -hmm. I saw recent polls that have Benjamin Netanyahu completely out of support and mm -hmm. if not 
before the war is over, at least as soon as it is, there just seems to be complete, and there was when I was was there, this complete disbelief that this was ever able to happen, that a country that boasts to have such a sophisticated uh, security network, it is is so across, and, and even when you go to Gaza, you can see, well, around the border, there are just cameras everywhere, mm-hmm. that everything is under such strict surveillance. The country is sitting there thinking... How the heck did this happen when we've got a Prime Minister who is telling us that our families are safe, that we are safe, that we are so well protected? So I think, I mean, the polls aren't surprising, but I think that's going to be a huge part of what is the end game. Well, the comparisons have been drawn, not least on this programme, with what happened to Golda Meir 50 years ago, of course, who did steward Israel through the Yom Kippur War, but then ended up getting blamed for the security failures that had brought it about and had been turfed out of office. It's even worse than 73. <clears throat> because you just imagine that you have Hamas, and according to some report, were training were for, for 18 months, probably two years. With paragliders, mm. this is a tiny, tiny enclave. How do you train, pa- you know, paragliders? The paragliders. I train paragliders coming through the sea. That's you can't train people in 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 uh, tunnels. Mm. You need someone to, you know, to be able to watch, as as you say, cameras everywhere, uh, drones flying over Gaza, satellite. You you really better believe how no one actually saw this. And then there is on the day. You would argue that when you see this happening, how come that gunships not immediately up in the air and try to stop it as as, as much as possible to to at least mitigate the initial failure? And obviously, at one point there will be investigation, a formal investigation of that. But for now, not only there is the trauma, is as you say, is the disbelief that something like this could ever happen. Yeah, the response rate is definitely something everyone was talking about, especially the families whose uh, families of the hostages. And then I think adding to that now is, as I mentioned before, the fact that it feels like the hostages have taken a second seat mm-hmm. in the whole operation. So it feels like, you know, the international community will say, surely you can see the faces of the children in Gaza and say that's not right. And when you speak to most people in Israel, they agree. They don't. They can see the difference between innocent people in Gaza and Hamas, but it's whether or not the IDF and the government can see that too. And I think the general population is growing frustrated with that difference. But it's also so what happens in conflict like this, the, the demonization and dehumanization of people, that you don't see that they are human beings. And you see each other as, 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 as children of lesser gods. And then it's almost become permissible, it's a permissible environment to kill whoever on your way, which is the tragedy of conflict. Well, <clears throat> on the subject of that international community, the foreign ministers of the G7 nations and representatives of the EU are convening in Tokyo. US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken in particular may be somewhat bewildered as to where he even is at this point, having within the last week visited Israel, the West Bank, Turkey, Iraq and Jordan. Apologies to anybody I missed. The Israel-Hamas conflict will obviously be top of the agenda, but nobody present will require reminding that there is also a major war in Europe, which shows wretchedly little sign of abating. Um, Lizette, on the subject of the Middle East, are there significant differences of opinion, do we think, among the G7 and the EU? France, notably, voted for a humanitarian pause at the UN General Assembly, while everyone else sort of looked the other way. Yeah, I think those UN votes in the last week or so have been a pretty... um 
very clear-cut representation of how divided they are at the moment. And that, as you say, France has decided to support a humanitarian pause. The US didn't. The others abstained, so didn't even want to put a foot either way. I think that is going to be uh, a theme that we see throughout the G7. I I can't see this being a whatever they come up with in terms of a statement. I don't think it's going to be particularly strong either way because there does seem to be such a divide between the different the different countries and their stances. The possibly more interesting question here, Yossi, or certainly the more pertinent one, is whether aside from the obvious, i.e., the United States, um, if we think of the rest of them as the G6, uh, does anybody in the Middle East actually care what they think? It's a good question. I think to an extent, yes, because they can put some pressure when the United States is still supporting completely uh, Israel when it comes to the issue of ceasefire and delaying, delaying. Mm. A ceasefire will end, you know, will come at one point or another. It's just a question how many more people are going to pay with their lives and how much more destruction is, is going to take place. So I think actually if some of the countries, especially... Uh, countries like uh, you, you know the UK or France, which is a different, it's more nuanced. A German will come with at least starting the conversation about, even if not complete ceasefire, at least not even humanitarian pause, but humanitarian ceasefire. Because people are using this term, but they don't know exactly what they mean by that. Because if you ask them, the practitioner, what do you mean by that? They said, oh, we are still working on it. Because it's such a small enclave, where do you can create the kind of the corridors? Where you can create enclaves within the enclave that people are safe? How the aid can come inside? You have, bear in mind, you have 700,000 displaced right now. Many hiding in UNRWA, uh, uh, either warehouses or schools mm-hmm. and, and hospitals. So to create actually any mechanism in which you can you can you can make sure that civilians are protected is very difficult and for that you need to see within the G7 some countries that work more on the humanitarian side and not looking at the military side um, they will of course also be talking about Ukraine Lizette from where you have also reported uh, do you get the sense that there is any wavering there we we discussed earlier in the week this crank call prank call, possibly both, uh, made to the Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney by by Russian hoaxes in which she did talk. I mean, candidly, but not really outrageously about a certain weariness uh, with the war in Ukraine, some of which is fair enough. I mean, I think everybody at the G7 heartily wishes it would stop. Um, But do you think that there is any real thought of selling Ukraine out in in an attempt to make that happen? I have to say, every time I've been clicking on a news website over the last month ever since Israel and Gaza kicked off that I my heart almost sinks a little bit because you can barely find a mm. trace of Ukraine in the news at the moment and I understand absolutely that that's the way of the world and it's hard to give everything the same amount of time in a bulletin or on a web page but I do think when you when it comes to countries like the US who are having to convince the population uh, to keep on investing money and financing and care about the war in Ukraine as well as now Israel-Gaza, I think that's going to become difficult because so much of it is about having international sympathy and and the public caring still enough for the politicians to then prioritise it. So I think that is that is going to be an ongoing struggle and I don't think that will be lost on Ukraine at all because I think President Zelensky has been coming out and trying to grab some headlines over the last month. Uh, but I think in terms of 
what we see at the G7, I think there'll be another reiteration of unwavering support, uh, but whether or not it's coupled with some really significant sanctions and an upping of anti of support, I'm not sure. Because there will, of course, also be a sense, Yossi, that the clock is ticking here, especially where the United States is concerned. It might be a year, give or take, in fact, a year more or less exactly today, I think, uh, from re-electing Donald Trump, which would, which would change the calculus somewhat. It is. But I think one of the points is, if you're part of the leading powers in the world, you should be able to deal with one, more than one crisis. Can't deal just with one crisis. Say, oh, since we have a new crisis, we abandon the, the, the other crisis. No, it's an ongoing. And we lose sometimes concentration and focus because we are living in a fast-moving world. The war in Ukraine continues, and the same interest, the same thing that happened before 7th of October vis-a-vis Ukraine is still we are in the same situation. The need to make sure that this war ends with Russia out of, of Ukraine one way or another. At the same time, new challenges will emerge. It's like another issue. Are we still dealing with environmental issue because we are in Ukraine or any other important issue? That's the task of, that's why we need forms like the G7 to create these international uh, forums that can deal with multi-crisis world. And then assume that they are failed in this. It's interesting that actually a meeting between Zelensky and Netanyahu, we saw, I think one of the ideas, one of the ideas was that we work on both of them together. But even if you look at what happened in Congress, they approved money, 14 billion, to support Israel and mm-hmm. say, but with the, Ukraine, with the Ukraine issue, we can wait. A Trump presidency, if it ever happens, whether it's within prison or outside prison, <laughs> we don't know this for sure, will, will change a lot of the calculus there. Because, because of the unpredictability, and we can assume that Trump's second time round will be even more unpredictable than first time round. There was one, just finally on this, Lizette, interesting subplot to this meeting in Tokyo, I thought. Also participating are the foreign ministers of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, i.e. all Russia's southern neighbours. This is actually quite amusing of the G7, I think, because this will... I'm sure go over thunderously badly in the Kremlin, but there's there's something to this, isn't there? Gently persuading these countries that you know the Western democratic world will ultimately be a better friend to you than Russia is ever going to be. We're getting a pretty clear indication of what sort of neighbour Russia is. Yeah, and they've accepted the invite and mm. they're going along, so that tells you that they're probably thinking similar. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move along to something entirely more placid, which is that Kenya will enjoy a surprise bank holiday Monday next Monday 13th. In what appears a sudden arboreal whim, Kenya's interior minister has announced that everyone will get a day off, but everyone will also be expected to spend at least some of Monday planting trees. Kenya is undertaking a drive to replenish its forest cover to the tune of 15 billion more trees by 2032. Although, and I have run the numbers, if everyone in Kenya plants two 283 trees on Monday. This plan could be in the bag this time next week. Um, Yossi, I'm I'm intrigued by this idea. Uh, I I quite like the idea of giving everyone a day off on the, you know, on the assumption that you will do something decent uh, as requested. How many Kenyans actually need to plant a tree somewhere to make this worthwhile? I just, you know, part of researching, I realised that we have three trillion trees in the world. Okay. Have you counted? 
Yeah, one by one. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was a bit late. No, and, and it takes 440 mature trees to offset the annual emissions of one person. Okay. So it gives you kind of the idea how many trees we need. But you know, are, are you saying to the people of Kenya Yossi so, that this is an exercise in futility? You might as well not bother. No, they just need to double and triple their efforts. <laughs> but you see, as, as someone who grew up in Israel, it's nothing new. We have every year mm-hmm. a celebration called Tubishvat which is the 15th of the month of Shvat, which is the Hebrew calendar, which is all going as kids, we are going and plant. So it's, it's regarded as the new year of, for the plants. And one of the things, you take a shovel and as kids and you walk with your class and you just plant t- trees. So this is kind of an idea that <laughs> goes around for a while, which is a good idea considering that I think we are, is it 15 billion trees, the deforestation that are cut every year, and we are, and I think we, we just plant one billion, so we are short of like 14 billion trees every year, which makes the environment a much more dangerous place um, to live. Lizette, Kenya wants to make this an annual event. Do you think it could take root? <laughs> I, 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 I'm I, mad I, at myself for I, laughing I, I, at that. I, I, I worked on that <laughs> quite a lot of this I'm afternoon. I'm really disappointed in myself for yes. even giving a chuckle. You, you, you should be. Ah, <clears throat> oh, I, I'm. I mean, until you told me your story about Israel, I, I, I was quite cynical about it because I was like, no one's going to go and plant a tree, and it's just going to be fun. a free day off. But I, but is it just a day off and then nobody actually does it? I was, I'm kind of haunted by the king's <laughs> I, coronation. I, 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 I don't, I don't know how you would make this compulsory. I mean, it would seem a bit much having police going house to house. But, it, but I feel like very few people will even bother doing it. They'll just take a free day off. The king's coronation, they had that charity big day out, and I had to go and find people. You know contributing to charity, and I put it. <laughs> but it's like giving a, a day off election day. You can't force people to go and vote, but you give them a chance. So yeah. some will go to the beach probably or go and have a barbecue. But the idea that you promote a good idea, it becomes a value. But why and don't I'm, they just say Saturday? Saturday, you go and plant. We're going to have a tree plant. I'm, I'm, I'm also intrigued by the logistics of this because it's not like you can just decide to plant a tree. You have to go and get whatever it is you need to plant a tree, like presumably some seeds or a sapling and a shovel. And then you have to, I would think figure out where to plant it because trees fabulous things though they are in the wrong place can be a massive inconvenience i mean you you could just have yossi people just charging about kenya planting trees willy-nilly well in my chaos maybe i'm naive about that but i thought the the government will think about you know will direct people will give you the plants and will direct you where to plant it that you probably won't do it in the middle of the road in the middle of of, they've literally given them six days notice yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was naive of me that there is was any plan there, but I, I think the value there, I can see that, especially when we want to see more trees instead of cutting trees in different stations. But if it's practical, well, in, when is next week? Monday. Monday. So we know by Monday evening how many trees were planted in Kenya. I, I did want to close by asking you each finally uh, about your own credentials on the tree planting front. When was the last time you actually planted a tree? I, I will settle for any vaguely, let's say medium-sized and up shrub. Well, I planted some sort of 
shrub <laughs> on the King's Coronation Charity Day in Green Park. Was, was this a, a charitable gesture? In, or was it, it was just, a, were you just passing the time because no, you couldn't was, find anyone to interview? That was the charity <laughs> that I found, and there were so few people there to film doing it that I had to offer my hand as a stock footage option of someone planting a tree. Did, did you get someone to interview you as well? Did you like try and do an Turned English accent and sort of like put, put, put on a beard and a wig? And, we didn't go quite that far. Uh, I'm I'm joined now by Rosette Lamer, a genuine, <laughs> actual English person, mm. something like that. My English accent is that poor. Now, <laughs> uh, Yossi, what about you? I do plant quite a bit because we have a garden, and here is my kind of secret. I I'm avid gardener, and I love it. When I say avid garden, I understand absolutely nothing. It's all about trial and error. Sometimes it's more trial, sometimes mm-hmm. it's more error. But every year, probably because I don't always plant the right things. I need to plant new things, but yes, we since around uh, March, April, planting quite a bit. And when, unfortunately, we had a terrible frost mm-hmm. last year, and like four shrubs just died, so I had to replace them. So yes, I did quite a bit. That that same frost did for both my wattle trees, and the hot summer dry spell cleared yeah. up all my bottle brushes. What I what I am actually learning yes. surprisingly, Lizette, that Australian native flora does not much actually care for extremes of climate. Oh, who you knew? would you would think it would be used to it. Yeah. I yelled at the carcasses of these departed plants. <laughs> um, Lizette Raymer and Yossi Meckelberg, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, the world travel market is underway right now at the Excel Centre in London. Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, has not had to travel very far to get to it. And he joins me from there now. Um, Tom, first of all, paint a picture if you would. The last time I was at the Excel was for that vast DSEI arms fair. I'm guessing this looks slightly different. It's slightly different, maybe slightly worse. Imagine the worst airport you've ever been to, and you're probably thinking of Berlin's Brandenburg Airport. It's like being stuck there when your flight's cancelled, except everyone in a holiday kind of mood wants to talk to you about how great their holiday is. We've got representatives from pretty much every country in the world at the Excel Center selling themselves and their wares, and these are CEOs, tourism ministers, industry experts, They're trying to shape the future of travel and and tourism. And I always come here and then forget to make a mental note of perhaps getting someone else to go. Um, (laughs) Because to compound all of this, this year is actually the biggest year ever. It's 20% larger than last year, 4,000 exhibitors, 14% new participants. And some of these include Eurostar, and they're showcasing their, their new services and their new identity. So I hope you still like their iron board seats and strip lighting because not a lot of change. And ABBA Voyage is here making its premiere in the centre. But right now, things are wrapping up. It's the end of the day and every country is now sort of outdoing each other by offering the best free drinks, food and entertainment. Nashville's got country music. New York's got cocktails. I don't know which one I'm going to go for. See, that's starting to sound all right. Clearly the key, if you ask me to do this job next year, is to turn up quite late in the day. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it's not about what you do, it's who you do it with, and sadly that's (laughs) not on my side today. Um, Are there any overarching themes discernible beyond the inevitable please visit the destination we are touting and spend lots of money? 
There's some major themes, and one of them is the fact that significant growth is coming the way to the tourism industry. They're projecting a $15 trillion, I need to get the numbers right, $15 trillion uh, growth. And the actual official theme here is a very uh, unpalatable reconnecting, reimagining, and rebuilding. This is about acknowledging the challenges the industry is facing, but also looking at opportunities for rejuvenation. And this is about the challenges of extreme weather events, the high interest rates, geopolitical uncertainty that's facing the industry right now, and how that can be tackled. Do you get the least indication that there is any sort of new post-pandemic tourism paradigm being developed, or is it just going to be back to what it was, more or less? No, there's there's big changes. Uh, the fact that package holidays are booming, that is slightly related to the pandemic, people wanting more security. Travellers still are going to take holidays, despite the cost of living crisis. And destinations are now having to think more about over-tourism. So capping numbers, as we saw in Venice, are becoming more and more important. And these hot summers in Europe that I mentioned, they're only going to get worse. There is now a big push for out-of-season travel, extending the travel period, opening longer, keeping staff on longer. And I, I spoke to the minister of Ibiza, who was trying to get more and more people to come out of season by hosting sporting events in the cooler months to get people en masse during these cheaper periods. Uh, and just finally then, in your peregrinations around the venue today, did you run across anywhere being advertised that you had not previously thought of as a holiday destination and found yourself thinking, I would like to try that place? I've got to be very careful because there's some very obscure ones that I did almost find myself slipping into. But no, I think Malta is very nice. Uh, a lovely little stall there. They're very modest. Things with uh, good countries, good countries like Italy, they just sort of set out a few table and chairs. And then there are countries that really, really need tourism. And there's a lot of bombast and noise and celebration. Just try and go for the, the countries with the small chairs and small tables. And that is going to be a good destination. Tom Webb, thank you for joining us. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yossi Meckelberg and Lizette Raymer, also to Carlotta Ribello at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.